0: to Acts chapter 5. Your Bible. Pastor John.
1: We've been looking at <clears throat> the book of Acts and m- making our way through it uh, paragraph by paragraph or sometimes a couple of paragraphs as we've been in chapter 5. Uh, we have seen uh, the Lord's dealing with sin in the church and uh, the life of Ananias and Sapphira and the work that he did or was doing there in Jerusalem to bring not only the church but everyone Uh, to have attention to what God was doing in the church at the hands of the apostles. And the last time we were in this text, we were looking at verses 12 through verse 16, and really the remarkable things that God was doing uh, as he was answering the prayer that was uttered in chapter 4, giving the apostles boldness and confidence to witness to the gospel message, as well as all of the miracles, and the miracles that were taking place uh, there in Jerusalem. You can see how it's described in verse 14 of Acts chapter 5. All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. And so what's taking place is, in a maybe subtle way, Luke is advancing the theme of the book of Acts as he's describing the expansion of the gospel beyond Jerusalem and its gates and into the communities around as those communities were coming into Jerusalem and then going back, certainly, to their homes. So the gospel is being preached in Jerusalem, but now people are coming in, hearing the gospel, seeing people healed, and then they're going out. And Christ had, remember, promised that they would be witnesses to him, in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And we're still focused on Jerusalem, but we'll see more as time goes along, as it actually unfolds, obviously, just as the way that Jesus described that it would. How is the church growing? It's growing by genuine conversion. Believers in the Lord, verse 14, emphasizes it's growing without discrimination, it says multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. So this is not only men responding, it's men and women. And we just noted that Luke draws attention to both groups, both in the Gospel of Luke, also in the book of Acts. And also through believing participation, because these believers who have come to Christ are now taking others who can't get there to the apostles so that they can be healed. But as we've looked at before, the healing, uh, both in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, often is in the context of someone placing their faith in Jesus, even at the moment they're also being healed. Uh, Used as an illustration, the woman who came up and touched the fringe of Jesus' garment, remember that? And as she touched the fringe, she was immediately healed. Why was she reaching out for the fringe of his garment? It was because of faith. She really did trust that if she got close enough to Jesus, to touch Jesus, that she would be healed. And Jesus, as he responded to her, remember, he said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. He acknowledged that faith. And so in verses 5 through 16, it's the faith certainly of those who had come to Christ who are bringing their friends and relatives and whoever, but it's also the faith of those who came on those cots and pallets. And if you just notice that, I wanted to point something out before we move into the uh, second part of the chapter here, or the third part, you might say. And that is that Luke uses both those words, cot and pallet, uh, he actually has four words that he uses in the Gospels for the type of uh, bed or temporary uh item that someone is resting on. four different words. Why am I pointing that out because Luke was a doctor. Luke probably had seen many of these in his time as he served as a doctor. He was used to seeing uh, sick people uh there are even studies that have been done on Luke's medical language, Um, and this is one of those times where, in a very subtle way, Luke kind of tells you who he is and what he's like as he uses vocabulary which is familiar to him, um, describing the circumstances very specifically according to what he observed or by testimony uh, people had given to him. So I think as you read through the book of Acts, you see, at times Luke even coming into the scene. But when he's not in the scene, the way that he's describing things, both in uh, the Gospel of Luke as well as in Acts, is very precise, very detailed, because he was he was uh, used to looking at those details. The other thing I already mentioned, as we look at verses five through sixteen, is this geographical expansion, and when the Gospel. Begins to have an influence when the good news is being proclaimed and the work of God is advancing. What could we expect? What do we expect if we understand the Bible, if we understand uh, this world, and uh, we could say everything about this world? What would we expect? Well, we've already seen opposition to the work of God on an internal level in this chapter. We've seen two wicked hearts lying to the Holy Spirit and to God. That's internal opposition. But you would expect opposition. You'd expect the work of Satan. You'd expect him to oppose when the work of God is being done. And that's what we're confronted with in verse 17 and following is there is opposition to the gospel. There's persecution. We've seen it before. We're seeing it again. As all of that is taking place in verses 12 through 16, the devil certainly is taking notice, and he's going to oppose it. How does he do so? Verse 17, let's start reading. It says, but the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But, verse 22, the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. But they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. There's certainly more that happens, and we'll have to have a part two and review that as we look at the second part of the chapter. But what I'd like to see is not so much the persecution as the opposition to it. Divine opposition to persecution. Persecution, the reality of it we've already seen in the book of Acts, but here we see again the high priest rising up along with his associates And Luke explains, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. We're told the motive, but prior to getting to the motive, I just want to encourage you to think about who is here, who is opposing the work of the gospel. It's the high priest of Israel. This is someone who would be familiar with the scriptures someone who would be responsible for teaching the people in the right and good way. But of course, during this time, there was corruption in the leadership of Israel. Jesus had confronted it. Now the apostles are still living with it. Same ones who were in authority during that time are still in authority, and the high priest is here. It says, along with all his associates, those who are his associates and defined as the Sadducees are not exactly people who you would expect, although it sounds like it from the translation. I believe that what's taking place here is you actually have a coalition of two groups. One would be the high priest and certainly those serving him. There's others mentioned in the chapter, but then the Sadducees If you read through the Gospels and you learn about Annas and Caiaphas, you understand the posture that they took towards Christ. And as especially in Matthew chapter 22, there are a series of different questions that are put to Christ by different groups. The high priest here is representative of a group that's not the Sadducees. It's a different group. So actually what's taking place here, as the opposition rises up, it's actually a coalition of what, they're not necessarily friends. They're not those who see eye to eye. But when it comes to the influence of the apostles and what the apostles are doing, they join together, sort of like what happened with Christ himself. So this is a coalition of enemies. One writer said, this is not a party organization but a coalition of distinct and hostile parties for a special purpose, not unlike that of Herod and Pilate against Christ. And remember, the Gospels even say that it came to a certain point as Herod questioned Jesus, Pilate questioned Jesus, that they became friends at that point. They hadn't been friends. But what they were joined together with was the pursuit of Jesus and the persecution of Jesus and eventually the execution of Jesus. We're told, in addition to this coalition, that they are motivated, verse 17, by jealousy. In the book of Luke and also Acts, a person can be filled with rage or fear or wonder. But in this case, it's jealousy. Jealousy for what? Well, what has just been described? The apostles are doing all sorts of miracles. They're preaching in the temple. They have the attention of the people and the city is now being overrun, you might say, by all those who are responding to this message and who is not getting attention, who are the people not following is the high priest and the Sadducees and everyone who is not a part of this Christian group. And so they're jealous. And this attack as they are filled with jealousy, the reason they put them in jail was solely because of that. Luke tells us their motivation. And remember, this is just like Christ. When Pilate, remember, was hearing the accusations when Jesus was brought before him, the scripture says he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 18. So this is a sinful motive sinful actions to oppose this we know is the work of God this we know is the preaching of Jesus Christ this we know God is testifying to uh, the reality of these men being sent by Christ by the miracles that are being done and here's opposition that comes it's moved by jealousy and what does it result in it results in jail time publicly shaming the apostles and putting them in jail verse 18 says they laid hands on them and if the apostles are going about Jerusalem and they have such attention that they're putting people in the streets, certainly the apostles are known. But now what they're known for is being tossed in jail. They've done something wrong, or at least that's the supposition that people would expect of their being thrown in jail. What did they do wrong? And I think there is certainly a lesson for us in verses 17 and 18 that there will be opposition to the preaching of the gospel. There is opposition to the preaching
0: of the gospel. Expect it.
1: Don't be disheartened by it. Keep on trusting the Lord. Keep on being obedient. Don't quit when. You start to get persecuted for the gospel's sake. We need to take care that our testimony and the things that we say don't offend unnecessarily or because of our sinful actions. But if we suffer as a Christian, not talking about suffering as an evildoer, if we suffer as a Christian, that's something we can actually rejoice in because they persecuted the prophets. Now we see they're persecuting the apostles. If you find yourself preaching the gospel and suffering for it, that's no new thing. It's no strange thing. And though we haven't seen imprisonment in our country, I do believe it's just a matter of time. There is opposition to the Christian message, there is opposition and hatred for Jesus. And it's just a matter of time before that builds and the devil moves people to strike out as he did throughout church history. And may the Lord help us to live godly in Christ Jesus. The promise that Paul uh, said there in Timothy was that all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So if there's living that's godly and preaching that's true, there's going to be the opposition of the devil and those who have a hatred for God. So there's a lesson here. There's certainly throughout the book of Acts, that same lesson, where you see the gospel being preached and proclaimed, you're going to see opposition. But when the Lord's opposed, no one can stop his hand. No one can say to him, what are you doing? Nobody can push back the Lord when the Lord is purposing to do something. God is almighty, and he is the Lord of hosts. That Lord of Sabaoth, that's the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. He has angelic armies at his disposal. Jesus, of course, referred to them as he spoke to his apostles as he was being arrested. And he said, don't you think that I could call upon my father and he would send legions of angels to my aid? And yes, he has in the past. We can see that in the Old Testament at different times, but it's just one who does his work on this night, verse 19 says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. So though there is opposition to the gospel through persecution, now we have the Lord's frustration of the purposes of the persecutors. He's just frustrating their purposes. And he's frustrating the purposes of the leader, the high priest. And as we see in the chapter, it's not only the high priest, but all the Sadducees as well. Eventually, the Senate of Israel is called all the leadership of the nation. And God just sends one angel during the night to open the doors, to lead the apostles out, to send them back to the place where they were preaching. The Lord can do that very simply, right? You ever tried to frustrate someone's purposes and you can't do it? Sometimes we have a purpose that's opposed to someone else and we try to frustrate their purpose and gain our purpose and we can't quite do it. Sort of like the other night when a raccoon decided to start digging into the shutter outside my window. And I wanted to frustrate his purpose. So I opened the curtain and I shined my light on him. And that did not frustrate his purpose. He just kept on going. And then I, of course, thinking if he doesn't stop, he's going to make a mess. And it's going to be a problem. It was right outside our window, too. So I'm thinking, how am I going to get that? I'm not going to climb out. I'm not going to get a ladder and climb up there with him. What am I going to do? And so I go outside and water hose and other flashlight. I'm doing all sorts of things to try to get this thing back up in the tree where it was and off my roof. Eventually, after it quieted down for a little while and then got started up again, I didn't know where it was on the roof. Eventually, I saw it. I think it was the same one going out through the yard and across the street to give trouble to my neighbors. (laughs) At least for a time, I frustrated his purpose. And that's just a little raccoon. God is the God of all the earth. God is the one who can frustrate the purposes of nations and peoples. Even when they intend to do harm and intend to rebel against him and accomplish their own purposes, God can accomplish his purposes. He did it through Christ on the cross. He frustrated the devil's purposes to destroy the work of God and Christ actually by laying down his life on the cross and then rising again, he defeated the devil. And so God is, this is what God is good at. He's good at everything, but he's good at this and he's frustrating. And just with a simple angel releasing the apostles, and as you read the description a little bit later, you kind of wonder what exactly happened as they passed through the gates and The guards were there, but they just passed through and ended up in the temple. What did that angel tell them? Look at verse 19. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, not only did he release them, but he gave them a commission, go stand or take your stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. So there was a commission. It was the same commission that they had had before, but the the focus of this was to go back to the very place where they most certainly would be known, they would most certainly be discovered. This wasn't like going outside of Jerusalem to go preach the gospel elsewhere, and there were times, of course, that the apostles and the disciples were told, if you're not received in a certain city, go and go elsewhere. But in this case, God had a purpose to both show his sovereignty over what was taking place and also frustrate the enemies. And he had a message that needed to be proclaimed, continue to be proclaimed. What was the message? Well, it was the message of life, literally all the words of life. Jesus has the words of life, That's what Peter said when some left Jesus and Jesus said, will you go also? And what did Peter say? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. These are words that are life-giving, eternal life-giving if they are believed. Jesus said in John 12, 50, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told
0: me. So Peter was right. He had the words
1: of eternal life. And those apostles were familiar with them because they had heard them. Now they're the ones proclaiming them, unless they think that they should be afraid because of the persecution and go elsewhere. No, go back to the temple itself the temple, which is in the city of the great king. This is where the gospel is to go forward from. This is what they're to go do. And they're obedient. Look at what it says. As they go, verse 21, upon hearing, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of surprised that somebody's there. Right? At daybreak. And just that verse is a reminder that during this time, there is an extraordinary attention to what God is doing, but also what God is saying. And that's a wonderful thing when God's people give attention to what he is saying. When there's an eagerness for the word of God. When there's a desire to hear what God has said when there's a desire to hear what Christ has said. These people are there, the apostles begin preaching, and after this simple act of God to send the angel with that commission, they go back into the temple, then we go back to the scene where the high priest and his associates are in view, and not only them, but also the council. Verse 21 says the council, it defines that council as even all the senate of the sons of Israel. This would be The leadership of the tribes, the leadership of the nation, this is getting bigger in terms of the number of people involved. And what God is doing, not only by sending the angel, but also releasing the apostles to go back into the temple, he's going to embarrass this leadership providentially as they attempt to try the apostles you ever gotten to a place and you thought you had everything together, but the critical element didn't become a part of the situation? I mean, if you're going to try the apostles, they've got to be able to be there, but they're at the temple, but the high priest and his associates don't know it, and now everybody is gathered together, and the order is given for them to be brought. Verse 22, but the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back saying we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. So how the angel did it, we still don't know, but he did it. And now this very significant meeting that's taking place is gonna realize the surprise. What is the surprise? The ones on trial are no longer in hold. The officers go to get them, they're not there. All that we plan to do today, we don't know how it's going to play out because this was the plan, and without them, there is no plan. are just going to sit around and do nothing or obviously try to find them. So the surprise or the two surprises is, first of all, the empty cell, and they're perplexed about that, and that would be an embarrassing situation, wouldn't it? If you're one of the officers that's there in the prison and the apostles were in there the last time you knew, and then suddenly someone comes and says, I need the guys who are inside, and you start to open up the doors, and you're like, "Uh, you're looking for, is there any break in the, is is there a win?
0: Uh, where do they go? It could be one of
1: those keystone cop moments. You ever heard of the keystone cops? These kind of Incompetent, bungling policemen who are always messing things up. That's kind of what seems like could be going on here. We're looking at it, reading. We're not given those kinds of details, but we just know there's an empty cell that should be filled with the apostles. And there's another surprise, and we've already read it, but it would have been a surprise to them to not only learn is there an empty cell, but they're actually at the temple. This is. This is in terms of a place to go to work in the morning for the high priest. Where should he be, right? This is the very place where he has jurisdiction, where he is leading things. And it's in that very place that the apostles went and are now teaching. And of course, when that report came, as it did in verse 25, can you imagine the reaction on the part of not only the high priest, but all of those who are sitting there waiting for them to come, they're in the temple? They're teaching again? I thought they were arrested in prison overnight. It certainly would have been embarrassing. But you know, the Lord has a way of dealing with his enemies. He has a way of dealing with them, especially when his purpose is to communicate the truth to them and not just destroy them. Because God doesn't have to be merciful to those who oppose him, right? He could take the lives of those who oppose his gospel and his people in an instant. But he doesn't always do that. Sometimes his purpose is to humble them, to communicate the truth to them, and in some cases, He gives new life to them.
0: He did so with the Apostle Paul later on. In
1: this case, he is humbling this group of people. He's doing so in a very public way. One writer said, so easily God can, whenever he pleases, frustrate the plans and expectations of his enemies. These very servants were witnesses that they fought against God by whose divine power they must know the apostles were delivered from prison, which was so tightly guarded that they could not otherwise have escaped. But those who willingly shut their eyes cannot see what is in the clearest light. Now what God did here, he has done before. He's done it before in scripture. He has frustrated leaders like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar He frustrated those who were envious of Daniel. Remember Daniel? He even got thrown into the lion's den. And he's praying to God, and God shuts the mouth of the lions, and those who were trying to kill Daniel or have him killed thought they accomplished their purpose. But obviously in this situation, God sent an angel. In that situation, he actually just closed the mouths of the lions. And he made lions. He knows how to deal with lions. He answered Daniel's prayer. And what happened the next morning is the king went and called for Daniel. Has your God been able to save you? And, oh, king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and delivered me from the mouth of the lions. And Daniel comes out. And those men who had accused Daniel are thrown in. And before they even hit the ground, the lions are on them.
0: And God sometimes does deal with his enemies that way.
1: But in this case, he's just humbling these men by frustrating their purpose. Notice the tempering of these officers and the, even the captain who went along with them. Verse 26, the tempering of their actions toward the apostles. Verse 26 says, then the Captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence for they that is the captain and the officers were afraid of the people that would be the people who were out there listening to the apostles that they that is the captain and the officers might be stoned. This situation that's taking place is actually on a citywide scale it's expanded beyond the city, and the overwhelming majority it appears are looking to the apostles for their teaching, for their leadership. And they're at a point, the captain and these officers realize they're in a precarious situation. They're not as popular. And so to arrest these men, again, would put them in jeopardy for their own lives. So I believe what's taking place there in verse 26 is, God is tempering the response of the officials toward the apostles. Doesn't mean they're not going to question them, but as they bring them back, they're not bringing them by force. And I think that's what the phrase without violence means.
0: By the way, the apostles don't resist. As
1: it says that they're brought back. It says, verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. That means that the apostles willingly came They were in jail for a little while and would have come just by the officers leading them. But now they're at the temple, they're teaching, and now they're requested by the captain of the temple and the officers to come. They didn't grab hold of them. They didn't arrest them. Instead, they're just leading them. And the high priest is going to give them some questions or at least some statements that imply that they're guilty of some things. Look at verse 28, the high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. That's one. And yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, did you notice what the high priest didn't say? What he was unwilling to say? This was in order to show contempt for the one that he's talking about, but he will not say his name. Won't even say his name. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. What is that name? It's the name of Jesus. They had such contempt for Jesus. They crucified him. They thought he was gone, but of course he rose from the dead. They tried to silence or they told lies in the place of those soldiers who saw what really happened the morning of the resurrection. So this is contempt for, hatred for Jesus. It's obvious even the way the high priest is speaking about Jesus. And notice as well as he continues, he says, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So there's a charge here of civil disobedience. They hadn't obeyed the command to stop teaching in Jesus' name. He charges them as well with filling Jerusalem with their teaching, and he charges or suggests they were trying to charge the leadership of Israel with responsibility for the blood of Jesus. what, What would you think based upon that statement? What came to my mind as I was looking at this verse and studying it, I thought, Guilty, guilty, guilty. Guilty? Yes, they continued teaching in Jesus' name. They could not do otherwise. There is salvation in no other name under heaven. God had given them this commission, Christ had given them this commission. Yes, they filled Jerusalem with their teaching. There's a sense in which God was working with them to accomplish that as He worked in the hearts of those who listen, who receive their message. So, yes, they filled Jerusalem with the teaching, but there was a reception of the teaching. That last statement, does that strike you? And intend to bring this man's blood upon us? that strike you funny based on what we know of the Gospels? Because Pilate, remember, took the basin and he washed his hands. And he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And what did they say? His blood be upon us and our children. They were actually claiming responsibility at the very site where he was being convicted and sent to the cross. They had taken that upon themselves. Now, the apostles, of course, are going to remind them in just a moment, yes, you did, you are responsible, but they themselves said that they were responsible. Now, I don't know if you... Never thought about being in the shoes of Peter or the rest of the apostles, but what would you say? You're standing before this chief judicial officer and you're standing before the leadership of the nation. This is not an ins, this is a very significant meeting. You're standing there, these charges are put to you.
0: Would your knees be knocking? Would your
1: hands be trembling? They're, they're, they're put on trial. They know that this very same group of people had crucified Jesus. These men have the, the rule or the, the authority in their position to, to execute. Obviously, they have to work that out with the Romans, but they did for Jesus. They could charge these apostles with some of the same things that they're causing an uprising. They're preaching that Jesus is a king, that somehow they're rebelling against the Roman Empire. The arguments that had been made before, they could make them again. What would you be doing? How would you be feeling? And I, it's a wonderful thing to see what God does in the hearts of people when they're on trial or in circumstances that you would say would be fearful. I mean, to be standing there knowing that your life would be in danger. I think the fact that you just got released from prison by an angel might help,
0: but the reality is the angel's not here.
1: And I ask you that question, you know, you don't need to worry when you find yourself standing for God, speaking the truth, because you're really not alone. Not only were the other apostles there with them, and there would be, encouragement through company that same company who'd been in the presence of christ and learned from christ but there's someone here there's someone here
0: and he is always with us too who is it who is it
1: it's the holy spirit of god The Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in the hearts of his people, who when they speak for God, the Holy Spirit is there to aid and be, as we find in Peter's statement here, a co-witness to the truth. So there's some conviction that's going to come out of the mouth of Peter and the apostles here. That conviction is based upon Christ's teaching that they listened to and believed. That conviction is based in part because they were witnesses to the account of the gospel. They actually saw Christ, they saw his crucifixion, they saw his resurrection, they saw all of it. And certainly that would be a part of what would have given them the confidence because they knew they were speaking the truth. But beyond that, they have the presence of the Holy Spirit within, and they're quite aware of it, not only because of what happened on Pentecost, but also... Peter says here in verse 32, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So they are convinced of the truth and I'm just going to move quickly through what they're convinced of here in this scene, but it's amazing because the Holy Spirit is there to help them. He had said, Jesus had said to them, beware of men for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the gentiles but when they hand you over do not worry about how or what you are to say for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say for it is not you who speak but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you and i think based on what is said here there's no question that this is the Word of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God actually inspired what they're about to say. I'm not saying that because I could see somehow the Holy Spirit. I'm saying because we have it written in Scripture, what they said. And Luke is a human writer, but superintending over Luke and any other human writer of Scripture is the Holy Spirit so that the words that come are the words that God wants written. It's God breathing out words. And in this case, as he's using the apostles, they are preaching and testifying to truths that are God's words. Just like Jesus, as Jesus gave the words of the Father and had the fullness of the Spirit so that whenever he spoke, there was nothing but truth. Of course, he was perfect as well. But what does Peter say here? And the apostles, of course, are part of this scene as well. It wasn't just Peter, but he's the leading spokesman. What are his words? What does he emphasize? We already read through this, but I think the first thing we see is that in response to these charges and response to their, their chiding them for their disobedience, Peter says, along with the apostles, God is our ultimate authority. While we are answerable to human authorities, I think Peter would say, based upon his other teachings, there is a higher authority. Peter's not rejecting authority here, per se. He's saying that there's a higher authority who has given them commands that supersede any commands they might be giving to the contrary. Jesus, of course, had proclaimed, or uh, told them to pray in his name, to pre- proclaim the good news about him. And they couldn't help but witness to the fact that he was the Messiah. They couldn't help but preach the message that Jesus saves and that he forgives sinners. So Peter here is claiming there's an authority above them who he must obey. And who is that? This is none other than the God of their fathers. It's interesting that he uses this phrase, the God of our fathers, It's the same phrase that Moses used with the children of Israel when he went into Egypt to convince them that God had spoken to him. It was the God of our fathers that not only Moses spoke of, but he also spoke of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, specifically those fathers. So Peter is connecting the truth of what he's teaching to the historical God of Israel, Yahweh. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. And so there's a conviction that God is the ultimate authority. There's also a conviction that God has raised up Jesus from the dead. This is the resurrection. This is something they were convinced of because Jesus prophesied it. Jesus rose from the dead. He made many appearances to them. They had seen him. They had eaten and drinking with him. They were convinced of this truth that he had been raised from the dead. And in addition to that, they were convinced that the leadership of Israel was directly responsible and fully responsible for his crucifixion and death.
0: Notice, verse
1: 30, after the name Jesus, which had not been mentioned by the high priest, he says, whom you had put to death by hanging him on, what's that word? There's there's a different word here than cross in the original. You might see it in the margin. There is a Greek word for cross. It's not that word. It's a word for tree or a piece of wood. And crosses were made out of wood, but I think you'll see in a moment why I'm saying that. It says, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a tree. They were responsible. The Greek word that describes Putting Jesus to death here refers to someone who is, who is killing with their own hands. It's not like shooting a gun from a distance. This is like taking in with your own hands, causing the death of another. It's a strong term that Peter uses as he charges the high priest and the leaders of Israel with the death of Christ. And, and what kind of death was it? It says that they hung him on a tree. If you look through the Old Testament, you'll see a couple of times where someone is hung on a tree. Absalom was hung in a tree by his hair, but there are other times where someone is hung on a tree as an act that declared that the person was cursed by God.
0: That was their view of Jesus. That's what
1: happened to Jesus. Jesus was placed and hung on a tree, on a cross, made out of wood. That's not insignificant. Why do I say that? Well, Galatians 3, Paul makes a point out of saying, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Who else was hung on a tree? The king of Ai was hung on a tree. The kings that were rebelling against God and rebelling against Israel, those were hung on a tree. But this is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he was hung on a tree too. Not because of something he had done, but as we sang in our song of the month, as a substitute for sinners who deserve to be hung on a tree themselves. You ever think about that? that you for your sins and me for my sins, we deserve to be hung on a tree in open shame because we've sinned against God. But Jesus,
0: in mercy and love and grace,
1: took our shame and took our place, became a curse in our place. It's a sobering thing. It'd be sobering for these men to listen to what Peter has to say. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a tree. Who is this person hung on a tree? Not only is his name Jesus, but he is the one, verse 31, whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What were they convinced of? They were certainly convinced of the ultimate authority of God. They were convinced of the resurrection. They were convinced that the leadership of Israel was responsible for his death. They were also convinced that Jesus is indeed Lord and Savior. I say Lord, the term here in verse 31 is prince. That The word prince refers to someone who is a founder or a ruler, the head or a chief, the emphasis someone has said is a person who rules or commands, or one who has primacy of authority. He's called the Prince of Life and the Prince of Salvation and the Prince and Perfector of our faith. So, this one whom they crucified, this isn't just any person. This is the Lord of Life. This is the one who made life. And he's also a Savior. He's the one who rescues and delivers. He not only would rescue and deliver the nation, but he rescues and delivers sinners from their sins. And so they were convinced of his true identity as prince and savior. And they were convinced that he had a gracious purpose for Israel. Notice as he continues in verse 31, he says to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You would think, In light of what had taken place, in light of the fact that God's son came to the earth, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, that for the nation to then take him and abuse him and spit in his face and crucify him in open shame, how would you respond if someone did that to your son? How would you respond? And this is where we see the love and the mercy and the grace of God, that God was still willing to show love to his people in the face of all of that sin, that Christ actually came knowing that that would happen. And what was his purpose? His purpose was to grant repentance to Israel, to give them forgiveness for their sins. Jesus said it on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing.
0: And that is the heart of God.
1: God loves his enemies. He rescues his enemies. He turns them from darkness to light. He turns them from when they love sin and pursue sin, and he turns them in the way of righteousness. And he calls them his children. What a gracious God we serve, that he would have that purpose. And this is something they are convinced of. What a gracious God we serve. What a merciful Lord. Peter and the apostles, the last thing that they say they're convinced of is that they are witnessing to these things, but not only are they witnessing to these things, that the Holy Spirit is as well. Whenever you witness as a believer in Jesus Christ to others, to the truthfulness of Scripture, to the gospel message, remember you are never alone. The Holy Spirit is always there. He lives within you. He's there to aid you. He had sent the Spirit to indwell and empower his apostles, but for everyone who believes, notice what Peter says in the end of the verse, it says, so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And what is that obedience?
0: It's the obedience of faith. So no, you are never alone when you witness to the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit's always with you. Isn't it amazing that God would orchestrate such circumstances that again, again, He would bring these apostles before the leadership of the nation? They'd already rejected it.
1: God is a gracious God in that He sends messengers, and as he sends messengers, and they proclaim the message, and maybe are rejected in the first place, or mistreated, or shamed, you know what God does? He sends more messengers, and he sends more messengers, and he sends more messengers, but there are times when that rejection is such that there is a hardened disobedience and a a willful turning from the truth You know, God doesn't have to send a second messenger, but if he does, it's grace and mercy. And if you have heard the gospel message and you've rejected and rejected and rejected, and God is coming to you again today, and through the message of the gospel, you are hearing the truth, why won't you respond? Why would you resist such a merciful and gracious God? Put it in the words of the prophet. Why will you
0: die? He offers life, he offers forgiveness, he offers. Presence with him forever in heaven. He offers to rescue you from everlasting punishment. Why would you resist that? And that's just it, isn't it? Sin is not logical. Rebellion is wickedness. There may be someone who needs to turn this very day. Would
1: you come to Christ today? You could come today, could be settled today, put your trust in Christ, call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. That could be today for someone. It could be right here and now. You might say, well, I need to think about it a little bit. Think about it, but don't, don't go on thinking. Give in, yield, put your trust in Christ. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.
0: Father in heaven, apart from your spirit, these are just words. But we know that your words are life-giving. And we ask, Lord, that you bring
1: glory to yourself as you give new life. For those of us who know you, we pray that we might be stirred to proclaim the message that we would be convinced, as the apostles were, of these truths and proclaim them.
0: Give us joy in believing them
1: and hope. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's wrestling in their heart, even now, knowing that they need to turn to Christ, Lord, would you press on in love and gentleness with the gospel message that they would turn from their sins and put their trust in you.
0: And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.